Today is also Vesak New Moon Uposata. So Nalanda is honoured to host Ajahn Arya Damika since last night. So I would like to humbly request Ajahn to give us Dhamma sharing. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm very pleased to be back at Nalanda Buddhist Society and to have the opportunity today to speak a few words to you. Thank you for the invitation. As a topic, I was thinking about something that is applicable to all of us, regardless whether you're a monk or a layperson, young or old, rich or poor, beautiful or ugly, about something we all need in all stages of our life. And this is decision-making, in particular, skillful decision-making. As we all know, decisions are made with the mind, and in the Tamabhada, uh, the first verse in the Tamabhada, the Buddha said, Mano Bhupangama Tamma Mano Setta Mano Maya Phenomena have mind as their forerunner, have mind as their chief, their mind made. Then the Buddha continues and says, if one speaks or acts with an impure mind, a suffering follows, just as the cart follows the foot of the ox that draws it. Okay? And then if one speaks or acts with a pure mind, Happiness follows, just as one shadow that never leaves. Right? Wherever you go, your shadow follows. <laughs> so, our mind is very important when we want to make skillful decisions, and those skillful decisions will then lead to our welfare, benefit, and happiness, as well as to welfare and benefit for others. Another benefit in terms of decision-making, skillful decision-making, is what is called in Bali language, avipatisara. Avipatisara can be translated as something like non-remorse, non-regret. There's this kind of feeling, you know, at the end of the day, before you go to bed, you look in the mirror with a good feeling. You haven't said anything wrong during the day, so you go to bed with a light feeling in your heart. It's the feeling of non-remorse, so you can be happy with your conduct. And this is something very important. Still, sometimes I think every one of us, in the course of his life, sometimes we make decisions which later on we might regret, where we think, actually I shouldn't, shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have said that. So. To have skills in that area, I think, is something very important. There's a discourse given by the Buddha, which we find in the Anguttara Nikaya, which is called the Atipadeya Sutta, Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Threes, Discourse Number 40. I think I will read out uh, a short passage from the discourse, maybe not the whole one, but certain passages that we can get a picture and then we might discuss that a little bit and see how that can be applied to our daily lives. Because that's essentially what the whole Dharma is for. It's not just for study, it's for putting it into practice in our daily lives. 
we are using here Bhikkhu Bodhi's excellent translation of the Anguttara Nikaya. Book of Threes, discourse number 40, which is translated here as authorities. Authorities. It starts with the Buddha saying, Bhikkhus, there are these three authorities. What three? Oneself as one's authority, the world as one's authority, and the Dhamma as one's authority. So these three things, oneself, the world, and the Dhamma. Then it continues, and the Buddha says, and what because is oneself as one's authority, so the first of these three things, here, having come to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, Epiku reflects thus, I did not go forth from the household life into homelessness for the sake of a rope, arms, food, or lodging, or for the sake of becoming this or that, but rather with the thought, I am immersed in birth, old age, and death, and sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and anguish. I am immersed in suffering, afflicted by suffering. Perhaps an ending of this entire mass of suffering can be discerned. As one who has gone forth from the household life into homelessness, it would not be proper for me to seek out sensual pleasures similar to or worse than those that I have discarded. So basically saying, now he has become a monk, he should not be interested in getting fine robes or special arms food, because that's what he was doing already before when he was a layman, running after food, sensual pleasures. Now he's supposed to behave in a different way. He then reflects thus, energy will be aroused in me without slackening, Mindfulness will be established without confusion. My body will be tranquil without disturbance. My mind will be concentrated and one-pointed. Having taken himself as his authority, he abandons the unwholesome and develops the wholesome. He abandons what is blameworthy and develops what is blameless. He maintains himself in purity this is called oneself as one's authority. So just to summarize, he's simply reflecting on his life, on his lifestyle, and whether what he's doing, how he lives his life, the decisions he makes, how he's conducting himself, whether this is suitable, whether this is proper for himself. That is taking oneself as one's authority. Then, the discourse continues with the second authority. And what because is the world as one's authority? And then it's basically the same as before. He reflects on his interest in robes and arms food, and that this is something that is not proper and should be discarded. And he reflects, as one who has come forth from the household life into homelessness, I might think sensual thoughts, thoughts of ill will, or thoughts of harming. 
but the abode of the world is vast. In the vast abode of the world, there are ascetics and Brahmins with psychic potency, psychic powers, and the divine eye who know the minds of others. So he's now considering that there are beings out in the world, spiritually very advanced practitioners, who can read our minds. And he's kind of now getting afraid, because if they see or they can read his thoughts, so he's a little bit afraid that people know about his desires. He's considering this. Furthermore, a little bit later, I'm jumping a few sentences, he considers also that there are deities too, with psychic potency and the divine eye, who know the minds of others. They see even from a distance, but are not seen themselves, even when close. And now, basically, he comes to the same conclusion as before, that he should arouse energy, mindfulness, to overcome those unwholesome states. So having taken the world as his authority, he abandons the unwholesome and develops the wholesome. He abandons what is blameworthy and develops what is blameless. He maintains himself in purity. This is called the world as one's authority. At first he took himself as a reference point. Now he's taking other people or other beings in general, could even be divine beings, as his authority. Number three, and what because is the Tamma as one's authority? It again starts in the same way, with thoughts about sensual pleasures, food, and so on. Then he reflects. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, and to be personally experienced by the wise. There are fellow monks of mine who know and see. As one who has come forth, from the household life into homelessness, in this well-expounded Dhamma and discipline, it would be improper for me to be lazy and heedless. And then he continues in the same way, he arouses energy and overcomes those unwholesome states. So he's considering the Dhamma, the value of the Dhamma, and the benefit of the Dhamma, and this rare opportunity to encounter the Dhamma, he considers it's good to make good use of it, of course. Just as what we are doing now, we listen to Dhamma dogs, we practice meditation, so we're trying to make good use of it. How I originally got interested in this discourse is by a book I read uh, some time ago, written by a Thai monk uh, with the name of B.A. Payutto. B.A. Payutto, I think some of you might know this is a very well-known, very senior monk in the Thai Sangha of the present time, a very knowledgeable monk, well-learned monk. And he has written a book which is called No Tamma Dipadaya, No Democracy. And what he's basically getting at is that these three principles can be used for decision-making, not only by individuals, but also by society as a whole, or even political systems. In this case, he's speaking about democracy. Thailand is always struggling a little bit with all kinds of conflicts. Even nowadays, it's not much different. So it's a topic that's always actual and never old. 
And in his understanding of this threefold principle, the first principle, taking oneself not as a refuge, but as a reference point, asking how does this decision reflect on me or what is the effect on myself. Uh, this is not meant necessarily in a selfish way. Uh, you can also consider what is the effect on yourself in a selfless way. But you mostly consider how it is in relationship to yourself. The second principle, as he understands it, is one where one takes society or other people, one's peer group, one's friends as a guideline, thinking, if I do this, how do other people react to that? What will be their reaction? Will they blame me for this? Or will they praise me for that? These kind of considerations. And then the third principle, taking the Dhamma as a reference point, basically means considering the teaching of the Buddha, but also virtue, truth. Dhamma can also have a very broad meaning in the Buddha's scriptures. So he's taking here the broad meaning, referring to Dhamma to virtue, truth, uh, reason, and considering his decision in this light. Ajahn Bayuto says that only the third of these three reference points is a good one or is the right one. That's what he is promoting. I have to say, just reading the Sutta, actually that's not what the Sutta directly says, because even the first one, if you remember, the monk considers and comes to the decision, I should rouse energy, practice mindfully, and overcome the unwholesome states. Even with the second reference point, the same thing. But I think it is certainly right to say that there is a kind of development, a gradual increase in profundity. Often in these discourses in the Anguttara Nikaya, you find that the first one is the lowest one, the second one, which is a little bit higher, the third one is even higher, and so on. So, Tama, Tipadaya, certainly being the highest of those three reference points. And interestingly, Ajahn Bayuto says, concluding that any political system, be it a democracy, be it a country which has a king, a monarchy, or whatever it is, as long as its ruling authorities or the decision-making authorities as long as they abide by this third principle, Tama, Tama Dipadaya, so long this country will prosper and will live in peace and harmony. This is quite interesting actually because nowadays we are so used to hear that democracy is the right thing to have and that's the best possible way of having a country governed. But he's here making the point that there could be a possibility that democracy is not necessarily the best one. For example, when the country or its people, those who go to vote, if they just follow their own interests and don't follow Tamati Pataya, then even though it's a democracy, the decisions could still be very selfish, based on selfish interests. And on the other side, you can have a, just a single leader of a community, whichever community it is, but if that single leader follows the principles of the Dhamma, righteousness, virtue, reason, then this community will still flourish and prosper. I found it a very interesting aspect to consider that. I was never thinking about that before. Also, in our daily life, we can come up with examples. 
Let me give one example first. We think about the birthday party. And there's this wonderful birthday cake. And it's really your favorite cake. So it's just exactly the cake, how you like it. It's your favorite cake. You haven't had it for years. And now finally it's in front of you. But there's one thing. You're not alone on this party. There are also other people around. So the question is, uh, how large a piece will you take? Will you take the largest one, a middle-sized one, or the smallest one, or even two or three? <laughs> it's a very tough decision to make, right? <laughs> <laughs> Using the first principle, atta uh, dipatea, considering oneself, you can consider, for example, okay, I like this cake very much, I just take the biggest part, right? But it does not necessarily mean that considering oneself, you have to come to a selfish decision. You can also think, actually, if I take the biggest part, maybe it's not such a healthy cake anyway, or my cholesterol is already high or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so you can still consider the effect on yourself and come to the decision, okay, no, I don't take it. But it's still always you are the reference point. Now, considering the same example with Lokatipadeya, taking the world, people, society, one's friends as a reference point, would then mean you're considering what would other people say if they see me taking the biggest piece? <laughs> would they agree to that? Would they start talking behind my back about me or complaining openly? <laughs> this is considering others. So one might come to the decision, I'm not taking the biggest part, I'm giving it to others. And then the third principle, one could take the Dhamma as a reference point, thinking, oh, there's this wonderful cake I have not eaten for so long time, but it may be a good opportunity to practice myself in dana, in generosity. So I take a smaller part and the bigger parts out like an offering to my friends, people together with me, I offer that to others. So you remember the Dhamma, the Buddha was always speaking about generosity, not being selfish, and you use the Dhamma as a reference point. You can also think about sense restraint. Many discourses you can read about sense restraint, as well as Pojane, Matanyuta, knowing one's measure at the meal. So there are many aspects of the Dhamma we can take as a reference point. But of course that requires that you have encountered the Dhamma before. So if you've never heard or read anything from the Dhamma, from the scriptures, from the Buddha, never heard any Dhamma talks, or only very few, then it will be very difficult to think in line with the Dhamma. But if you have some background, then you can use that beneficially. So I think this is a very good system for decision-making, these three reference points. I would like to ask you, do you have any examples we can discuss together, anything maybe from your life, any decision which you're facing can be a small one or a large one, like the one we just discussed. <laughs> and then let's try together to answer this question. Anything? Career choices? Uh, what is exactly the, the, the choice? What are the two options that we have to decide between? Some people have to, uh, they're interested in the law, but sometimes they consider their own interests and the dharmas. They are doing law, law. in the legal, legal field, for example, just for this question. But they don't want to do it too much because? 
they may they may have to defend those that are guilty. They may not be totally honest about that. Okay. Well, it's a good example. I don't know whether everyone heard it, just to summarize. So somebody who is working in the field of law, maybe he's a lawyer or a judge, he will have to make the decision whether he wants to pursue this activity or on the other side he wants to not to do it at all. And what is he doing instead? Okay, so let's say, let's make it simple. Whether he wants to work more on his workplace or spend more time for his family, okay? So it's something that many people have in mind. How much time should I spend for my career? How much effort should I put into that? And how can I balance that with my family life, with my private interests? And I think you also brought up uh, with my virtue, and with my ethical standards and principles. So when I'm a lawyer or a judge, especially as a lawyer maybe, they sometimes have to misrepresent the truth and maybe speak conscious lies. I've heard, it's not my opinion. <laughs> okay, let's tackle this difficult problem from the first aspect, considering oneself as one's authority. Any ideas? If somebody wants to say something, we can pass on the microphone. Considering oneself, how could one come to a conclusion to this question? Should I continue working as a judge? Or should I quit this job and seek something else? Because I don't want to lie anymore or misrepresent the truth. Feeling of remorse or regret. Not, not upholding justice. Mm. Mm. Reflecting on one's decision later. Like feeling of remorse, you know, okay, when if I continue with that, afterwards actually I don't feel very good, I have a lot of remorse about my activity. So this is considering yourself, you consider the effect that your decision or your work has on yourself, right? Another one could be, actually, this is a work where I earn a lot of money maybe, and I can support my family very well, maybe I have children, I can provide them to go to university, so you might even come to a decision, okay, I will continue with this work and to make money and to support my family. This is also considering oneself and coming to a completely different decision, okay? The second principle, considering others, how would that apply in this case? Can you pass the microphone? I'd like to give an like, example, uh, whether the decisions to join the group of gossiping or to staying alone, uh, especially during uh, lunchtime, to, to join the group of people that gossiping each other or to stay alone. Is a okay, okay. Speaking about gossiping, if other people know that one is having a livelihood which involves a lot of cheating or lying, then other people might also speak bad of oneself, either directly or behind one's back. So one is considering what other people say or think about one's occupation and about one's livelihood. Okay. And then thirdly, using the Dhamma as a reference point. Okay, I think that's pretty easy in this case. So since it's an easy one, I will try to answer myself. <laughs> Obviously, the Buddha spoke many times about 
being truthful, uh, avoiding lying, misrepresentation of the truth. That is even one of our precepts, of our training rules, ethical training rules that we undertake. Furthermore, if this livelihood is one where I have little time for my family and uh, I cannot uh, be there for my children, uh, then this could also be something which in the light of the Dhamma, in the light of virtue, is something to be avoided. And so we might direct our life to find an occupation where we have more opportunity to be there for our family. Okay, well, thank you very much for this wonderful example. Let's try one more. Any other examples? Okay, back there. Ajahn, uh, I'd like to continue on the example of the cake. So if okay. I use the three principles, and I know that this is the cake I like very much, and I really want to have the biggest piece. So uh, the second principle is to consider other people. So assuming other people are not really interested in the cake. That's an assumption. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what if they are all my friends? They know that I like this cake and they don't really fancy cake. So, you know, when I fall back to the third principle of the Dhamma, I'm being truthful. So I will still take the cake, enjoy it and appreciate my, my friends for, for allowing me to have the biggest piece. So what, what's wrong with that? It is perfect. You have, the best, you have the best friends one can imagine. I just hope your friends also have the same good friend in you. It is true. It's actually a common misunderstanding that as a Buddhist, we always have to give in. Some people think, oh, I'm a Buddhist. Whenever there's a conflict, I always have to give in. I have to let other people get in the bigger piece of the cake let other people go first, whatever it is, which is actually not true. So there is times in our life which are times to be firm and to be determined, especially if something goes against our ethical standards or against our principles or something is harmful to others, then that's not the time to be... One can still be gentle, but at the same time firm and determined. It's also an important quality, the ability to say no. Coming back to this example with the cake, of course, if one knows the others are not particularly interested in it anyway, and you are the only one who likes it so much, <laughs> I would say it's no problem taking it. <laughs> Thank you. In the light of the first principle out of the three, of course. So the other two principles, considering the opinion of others and considering it in the light of the Dhamma, most people might come to a different conclusion. They might consider sense restraint is a very important thing, uh, renunciation, generosity, uh, these kind of principles. One might take it as an exercise, as a practice, as an opportunity for practice to cultivate those qualities in ourselves, even though it goes against the grain, even though it goes against our liking. It's very often necessary to go against the grain, especially in the Thai forest edition, I've heard so many Tama talks only about patient endurance and being with the unpleasant experience. But speaking about Kanti, patient endurance, there's two ways to do it. The wrong way would be to grind your teeth and just endure whatever unpleasant situation you are in. 
this is actually not yet fully fledged come the patient endurance as we need it and want to develop it. What we want to develop is a peaceful coexistence with the unpleasant. And the emphasis is on peaceful. The situation will still be unpleasant, but we are at peace with it. We don't have aversion towards it, we don't develop hatred towards it, but sometimes there's just nothing you can do about a particular situation. So that's the time you just endure and you're at peace with it. And maybe at a later point, there could be an opportunity to change the situation, but sometimes it's not. So at that time, you just try to be at peace with it and be equanimous. That's the difference between grinding one's teeth and just enduring or peaceful coexistence with the unpleasant. Coming back to the topic of decision-making, one thing comes to mind, a principle that is used especially by economists, which is called the sunk cost fallacy. Sunk cost refers to any cost, any effort that you have put into a situation, a relationship, or your education. This can be time, effort, money. So these are all costs involved. But at a certain point in time, you realize your costs that you invested, the effort, has gone to waste. There's not much chance for any beneficial result of that investment. So this we call a sunk cost, like a sinking ship. These costs are really sunk. There's little chance to get any reward out of them. The sunk cost fallacy means that you make a decision based on how much effort you have already put into this project, this relationship, your education, or into baking this cake, whatever it is. Suppose a person wants to go shopping. The shopping mall is about 20 walking minutes from his home. So he starts walking, and after 10 minutes, he realizes, oh, actually, <laughs> today the shopping mall is closed. Then he thinks, I've been walking already for 10 minutes. I just continue walking to the shopping mall because I don't want the first 10 minutes of effort to be wasted. <laughs> okay, you're laughing. Of course, in this example, it's quite obvious that this is not a wise, skillful decision. But many times in our life, we make decisions very similar to that, but it's often not so obvious. We consider the effort that we've put into something, and it's often difficult to admit to oneself that a project or whatever one thought was worthy of investment, that that actually didn't work out so well. Because if you stop it and you don't put further effort into it, that would mean you have to admit to yourself or maybe also to others that your original idea was not such a good one. And sometimes we don't want to do that. Uh, to give an example, uh, you read a book, and sometimes halfway through, after 100 pages, you realize, actually, this book, it's not leading anywhere, it's just boring, and I'm not getting any benefit out of it. But I've already read 100 pages. <laughs> I just continue reading until the end, then I finish the whole book. So is this skillful, do you think? Is it wise? Or are you just wasting another 100 pages time? or you watch a movie uh, in the cinema or in the television, 
and you realize after some time, oh, it's a really boring movie. But since you've already started it and you're already in the middle of it, okay, you still continue, right? <laughs> so we give too much emphasis to the costs that have been invested in the past compared to the costs that need to be invested in the future. And to come to a skillful decision, only the costs or the effort which in the future needs to be invested into this project, this is the one that needs to be counted, not the past sunk costs. Okay? Do you have any examples along the line? Anything that comes to mind? Vante, uh, in the case of the book, there might still be a chance that uh, after 100 pages that there's this feeling that, well, um, the, the, the big thing is going to come in, uh, say, the next 20 pages. So there's always this feeling. That's mm. why we keep, I mean, hold on to the feeling that um, there's going to be something and um, probably maybe the, there probably isn't something there but um, there's always this feeling that uh, maybe 20 steps ahead uh, mm. yeah so yes yes there's this English saying hope dies last <laughs> <laughs> it's true because you never know there could be something amazing coming up but with the book for example we were already reading 100 pages so if the author was not capable of putting anything of interest in the first hundred pages, the chances are there, but they are slim. Let's say the other way around. You're starting now, and you know the first hundred pages are very boring. Would you still read the book? <laughs> you would not, right? So the reason why you still would continue reading is because you don't want the last effort, the previous effort, to be wasted. That's why now you're willing to put in further effort and maybe hopefully something else will come out. Just one more example. And this is, I think, an important one. We come to Buddhism at different ages in our life. Some people encounter Buddhism when they're very young, some in their middle age, and some when they're older. Often we have a livelihood. We earn our money in ways that we thought originally is a very good way to earn money and to make a living. But after we encounter the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, we sometimes come to an understanding, oh, actually, I need to break this precept or that precept, or my livelihood hurts people, or I'm involved in cheating sometimes. But on the other side, you might have invested a lot of time to learn this livelihood and to learn these skills, skills in cheating. <laughs> Not only skills in cheating, but there are many skills involved for most occupations. So then the question could be, should you really change your livelihood Following those three principles that we have discussed before, you might come to the decision following the principles of the Dharma that there could be ways to change your livelihood and maybe you will at first earn a little bit less money. But people who have changed their livelihood, they have done for 20 years, 30 years, and changed to something completely different because it was not in line with their ethical standards, with their principles anymore. All of them say they've gained so much benefit out of it. The short-term difference or the loss of earning less money is just neglectable in relation to what you gain instead. After having made a decision, there's one quality we also need. And this is, after you've made a decision, according to the best of your knowledge, then afterwards, to stand by our decision. It can be that afterwards it turns out that the decision had bad effects on yourself or on others, 
and you might regret what you've done. The right way to handle and to deal with this situation is to learn from the errors, to learn from what we have done in the past, and then in future to do it differently. But there's absolutely no need to feel remorse or to punish yourself. Just learning, acknowledging, and then doing it differently the next time. There's no reason for guilt, remorse, and these kind of things, especially if you've made a decision according to the best of your knowledge, according to the best of your understanding, and then later on things might turn out differently. You have to know that not everything is within your domain. And also accept that sometimes your decisions, however well intended they are, they can lead to completely disastrous results. And from all these little steps, if we make errors, we learn. It's like a small baby. You know, when they start walking, these cute little babies, it's walking three steps and then falling down on the ground, sitting there, maybe crying. But all of them, they get up again and try again. I've never seen a baby sitting on the ground saying, okay, I tried it. (laughs) Walking, nothing for me. I'm not going to try it again. Just get hurt. (laughs) So you get on your feet again and you try again. And then you fall again. And then you try again. And every time you try and you fall, you learn a little bit. Same as the baby. Over time, his coordination will get better and better. In the same way, we learn how to keep our precepts, how to deal with difficult situations, and how to make the right decisions. Okay? So that's how to deal with past wrong decisions. We can also use our wisdom faculty. In the Buddha's teaching, we often speak about the five aggregates, or the five aggregates of clinging. Can we just quickly, together, try to summarize which are these five things, these five aggregates, the five khanda? Any ideas? What is the first one? Rupa khanda. Rupa refers here to body, or sometimes also translated as form. So the first aggregate is the body. Our whole being is made up out of mind and body, nama rupa, as it is sometimes said, but actually it's better to speak of five aggregates, the first one being the body, which is the second one. Hmm? Vedana. Vedana. Well, what is Vedana in English? Um, feeling. Feeling. Feeling here does not mean emotions, but simply pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. Sensations, but having a tickling sensation would not be really classified under feeling. Feeling would be more the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect of this experience. Okay? Then, thirdly, what's the third counter? Perception. Sanya, perception, right? That's the label we give to things. Not consciously all the time. So you see something, you look at this bowl, you understand this is a bowl. So this is your perception of bowl. Or you get into a room, a dark room, and you see a snake on the ground. Immediately you jump back. But then you look a second time and you realize, oh, it's just a belt or just a string that looks like a snake. So you understand, oh, okay, no danger, no problem. This is perception. The eyes see the same thing on the ground, but at first the perception is snake. And then seeing it again, looking closer, the perception is belt or rope. This is perception, sanya. What is next? 
Pardon? Sankara. What does Sankara mean in this context? Mental? Mental activity. Yes. Mental factors and especially volition. Volition is leading those mental factors, but it also includes other chetasika, as it's called in the Abhidhamma literature. Okay, so volition, which is the active part of our mind. And then, lastly, what is missing? Consciousness. Consciousness. Being conscious of experience, being conscious of sights, sounds, odors, flavors, and objects of the mind, thoughts, these kind of things. So we have these five aggregates. Speaking about decisions, who of these five aggregates is making a decision? The body, the feeling, the perception, volitional formation, or consciousness? Who is making the decision? Or is it you who stands behind all five of them? Sankara. Sankara? Yes. Yes. It's the volitional formation which decides, which is the active part of the mind, which can be wholesome or unwholesome. The Buddha said, Chetanahang Bhikkave Kamang Vadami. It is volition that I call Kama. Whenever we speak about Kama, it is the volitional aspect. So if you have a good intention, good volition, then the Kama is a wholesome Kama and will lead to good results. When volition is unwholesome, then it will lead to unpleasant results. Okay, we say Sankara is making the decision. Is there anybody in control of Sankara? Really, if you look very closely at your experience, all you can find is these five aggregates. The body, feelings, perception, volitional formation, and consciousness. And there's nobody really in charge of those five things. All those five are conditioned phenomena. Our decisions are informed by past experience, by our upbringing, our value system, by past decisions that you have made, which influence your present decisions, maybe doing the same as before. But you see that they are conditioned phenomena. Volition is a conditioned phenomena. And when you understand that, then this can be a great relief because there's nobody to blame. It is just all these conditions coming together, leading to wholesome or unwholesome decisions. That's also a way of looking at it, which allows us not to blame ourselves when we have done something wrong, but to see it as a conditioned phenomena that we have acted or reacted in certain ways because we were conditioned, because our intentions were also conditioned, the choices we were making There's an active part, of course. We have influence on our volition. It's not completely predetermined what you do. The Buddha neglected this kind of teaching. There is a choice, but this choice does not come out of the blue. It is informed by our past, by many other conditions of our own life, of people around us, of our family, of our parents, our value system, and so on. I think I've spoken enough for now. I offer this for your reflection for today. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Are there any questions? We still have some time, do we? Okay. So I would like to invite for questions 
either related to the topic we have spoken before, or the Dhamma in general, meditation, uh, monk's life if you are interested, or you want to share something, so please feel free to bring it up here now. Is there any questions that we would like to ask Ajahn? Ajahn? I actually am not so sure of um, what Bhante mentioned about how we should not blame ourselves because um, our decisions were informed by the past. I'm not sure of how to comprehend that. Could you explain further? Okay. So the question was, how is it meant when we say there's no need to blame ourselves for our decisions because they are conditioned phenomena and they are influenced by the past? Often we identify with our life, with our mind. We say, I am doing this, I am thinking that, I have done this, you have done that. This is correct in a conventional way of speaking. We can speak about people, about persons, and that's how we act and interact in daily life. But when we look closer, especially in meditation, we can see very clearly that all our uh, mental makeup, our feelings, emotions, perceptions, and so on, as well as our intentions, are conditioned phenomena. We are not fully in charge of anything. Everything happens conditioned by other things. Before, I was mentioning the value system. For a certain person, it might be very important not to waste anything. So he's eating his food, and because he was brought up in a culture with parents who always said, you have to eat up whatever is on the table, don't waste anything. So we are conditioned by that. You've heard it many times. It was originally the opinion of your parents. Now it's your own opinion. And you might have tried many times in your life to finish the plate just because you're not supposed to leave anything remaining. Right? At the time of eating, we might think, oh, okay, I'm pretty full now. Should I continue eating or should I stop? And you might decide to continue eating. On the one side, yes, this is your decision. You've just decided now. But this decision is conditioned by your past, by your parents, by the society you live in, by the people around you who might see that you are not eating up everything. So this decision is not really you. It's not inherent in you. It's a conditioned phenomena. Everything that is conditioned, we cannot call ourselves. I cannot call it me if I don't have full control, if I'm not fully in charge of something. There's a simile. Think about a king. He says he is the king of a country. Then this other person asks him, if you're the king of this country, this means that when a criminal is doing a crime, you can imprison him, right? And the king says, no, no, I cannot. The other one says again, but at least you can raise taxes in your country. Can you? King says, no, no, I also can't raise any taxes in my country either. So basically the other person comes to the conclusion, no, you cannot be the king of this country if you have no control over this country. Similarly, the mind is a conditioned phenomena which is influenced by so many things. And if you have no control over this, you cannot call it yourself. You cannot call that this is me, this is mine, this belongs to me. Okay? That's the logic and the principle behind it. 
perhaps that will be the last question due to time constraint. Let us say sadhu, sadhu, sadhu to thank Ajahn. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you, Thank you very much for your attention. I hope you will have some opportunity to put these teachings into practice. Just as a reminder, the Buddhist teaching is not a belief system, but it's an education system. It's a way of practice where we gradually work and strive towards peace, happiness, and liberation through wisdom. Thank you for your attention. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.